Hello to all you travelers out there on the road to evidence-based literacy instruction. I'm Kate Wynn, classroom teacher and host of IDA Ontario's new podcast, Reading Road Trip. Welcome to the show. Before we get started, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast from the traditional land of the Mississauga Anishinaabe. We are grateful to live here and thank the generations of First Nations people for their care for and teachings about the earth. We also recognize the contributions of Métis, Inuit, and other Indigenous peoples in shaping our community and country. Along with this acknowledgement and in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, we'd like to amplify the work of an Indigenous artist. And this week we are sharing the very cute picture book, It's a Mitig, written and illustrated by Bridget George. Now on with the show. I'm so excited to introduce this week's guest. She is an early literacy researcher and associate professor in reading education at Florida State University in the College of Education and the Florida Center for Reading Research. She is currently studying content-rich English language arts approaches and pre-K and K writing instruction. She is Dr. Sonia Cabell, and I'm not going to lie, I slid into Sonia's DMs a long time ago because I am so interested in her work and we've chatted back and forth, but it's lovely to be chatting today. We can see each other, even though our listeners can't see us, but welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Thank you for having me. I have loved talking with you on Twitter and reading all of your Twitter posts and how your children are progressing through, you know, in their writing um, and in their early literacy. So thank you for having me on. It's amazing to have you here. So you have many areas of expertise when it comes to, you know, reading research, but today we're going to focus on that early literacy piece and particularly some of the great ideas in a book that you co-authored. So the book is called Literacy Learning for Infants, Toddlers, and Preschoolers, Key Practices for Educators, and your co-authors, Mariana Suto Manning, Tanya Wright, and Nell Duke. And in that book, you have five critical areas for young children's literacy development. So what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of hit on all five of those and just get you to sort of give us your your highlights and how, you know, as, as early literacy teachers, instructors, we can work on developing those areas. So the first one is clever communicators. So that really important oral language piece. So what does that look like for you and what tips do you have for us as educators? Yeah, to me, this is the part... Um, I think that probably the part I'm one of the parts I'm most passionate about. So all of my work focuses on the prevention of reading difficulties. How do we lay a foundation for children early on and set the stage for reading to occur? And um, so that when children are introduced to formal reading instruction, the transition is smooth and it it starts early. So this book is from birth to five Um, and the language develops, you know, right from the start, right from birth, in the many conversations that we have with young children, um, that we that adults have with them, that they have with each other, um, even conversations, proto-conversations before they're able to um, really uh, talk, you're having these turn-taking opportunities going back and forth. Well, this same conversational turn-taking is really important in school as well. Um, and research has shown that a lot of times There's a lot of talk going on in classrooms, but not necessarily a lot of conversation where the teacher and children go back and forth on the same topic. Um, Some of the research that I've done um, looking at um, preschools uh, in in the Head Start programs um, in the United States uh, found that uh, teachers rarely had 
multiple turn conversations that were more than um, four turns back and forth. Um, and that is, it's really important to think about those conversational turns because in a, in, a, in a conversation, teachers can scaffold a whole lot of language learning for young children. And in that section, there are so many little tidbits that I kind of took away and made notes about. But um, at one part, you talk about what some may call African-American English or Black English. And I certainly you know, don't, don't have the expertise to say what term we should use, but talking about how that should be welcomed and encouraged. And also the idea of instead of code switching, which we might have heard of as, you know, um, allowing or encouraging the going back and forth completely between languages or dialects. You talk about translanguaging, and that was a new one for me. So how is that different and why is it important? Yes, and I have to say, I have to give a shout out to Mariana Soto Manning, who is really the expert um, in the all of the, the, the dual language learner or multilingual learner pieces that you see in the book. But it used to be an older conception that uh, the, the code switching used to be this um, older conception that languages existed separately and we, we kind of flip switches in our mind, but that's not really how language learning works. So making sure that we are valuing the language that children bring and um, allowing them to go back and forth in um, English and in their native language, um, you know, some exa example in the book we use are like more agua, please, or está raining. Um, so rather so mixing it up together mm -hmm. and and not and understanding that that is that is fine. That's not going to hurt children's language development. Um, my I um, my parents uh, came from Pakistan and spoke Urdu. But one of the misconceptions that they had was if they had us, if they raised us bilingually, um, then we would um, not, our English wouldn't develop. But that's just, research has not borne that out. Um, so this idea of welcoming language, the child's language and allowing that translanguaging um, is important because children are trying to communicate a message. And uh, it, so it's important to, to value the communication um, and not necessarily you're not correcting them saying no no you have to say it like this even if they're talk even if they're talking in english you you wouldn't necessarily correct them so for example if a child says i i i win the game you would say oh yes you won the game good job so notice how i just gave you a language model but i didn't say hey 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 don't say that say i won the game repeat after me you're valuing the message yeah. that they're bringing and you're providing them an advanced language model and that's what those con that's one of the things those conversational exchanges do and when we want kids building sort of that oral vocabulary and all of that, what do we know about how the language of text, even children's picture book text, differs from just mm -hmm. conversational language? This is really important. So this is a key point because when you think about like the simple view of reading and you think about that language comprehension part of the simple view, it's really about understanding the language used in texts or written language not just understanding the oral everyday language. And the reason that's important is because the everyday language that you and I are speaking right now is far less formal and it has different syntax and vocabulary than the formal language language of the formal register of books. And it's the language of that formal register of, of books uh, that's valued at school um, and what some people term as academic language. Um, mm -hmm. 
And uh, so it's really important to understand that even in a simple conversation that you and I might have as you know college graduates, um, we have far less sophisticated words that we're using or what some consider rare words um, yeah. than a simple book we might read to our preschooler. Um, so it's very important to introduce children to the language of books and of texts early and often. Great advice. So the second critical area um, in the book is print navigators. So can you tell us a little bit more about what that means and how we can work on that with our students? Yeah. Um, so children, through through many exposures and opportunity, they be, and when you're reading aloud to them, things like that, you're showing them the book, um, they begin to see that print carries meaning that's in addition to or different than the illustrations. Research has shown, Igay's research has shown that children, when they're about three years old, um, they'll primarily be looking at the pictures, not the print when you're reading aloud to them. Um, they, they don't find the print worthy of attention yet. And so drawing children's attention to the print helps them to see that, oh, this carries meaning too. And print moves in a certain way, it moves from left to right and top to bottom in English, for example. Um, so it's important, a really important, a one, one really great practice you can use with um, preschoolers, as I would say, th this is a great three-year-old practice and has been studied with four-year-olds, is called print referencing. Um, and this was developed by Dr. Laura Justice, who was also my uh, shout out to her because she was my um, advisor in my doctoral work um, 100 years ago. <laughs> no, <it's> like, <laughs> and, um, uh, but this was, this is, she's found that this print referencing technique, drawing children's attention to the print by making comments and pointing uh, to the print um, really helps them to start to develop those print concepts and can have lasting uh, impact on their reading. And on this topic, I'm curious to know whether you know of any research or if you just have a professional opinion on um, whether there's any reason to do like formal assessments of um, those concepts of print. And one reason I ask is because um, a board leader at a, at a board other than my own asked me to take a look at a big board assessment package that they use with young kids. And and there were certain things like with my you know science reading knowledge now, there were certain things I was able to say, no, not this, not that. But then we got to this whole part where they would pull the child like a few minutes per child to, you know, how do you hold a book and where do you turn and all of that. Um, and I know it's important for kids to know those things. Do we have any evidence in terms of assessment, like whether it's you know, predictive at a certain point or whether it's worth a few minutes per child in the class to do that sort of thing? What are your thoughts? Um, gosh, this is a great question because it's on the kind of the tip of my tongue, um, some of the work around this. Um, but there have been some good assessments of um, print concepts that have been developed and validated. Um, and some of these items are woven into tests of print knowledge. Um, and those tests are predictive of uh, future uh, work. I would say that, um, I would say yes, that I would include some of these items in a larger battery. I would be considering how much is in my battery and when we would be giving this kind of assessment and to whom mm -hmm. would be really important questions. Um, but 
Um, but I would say that um, there is, you know, evidence that um, teaching these print concepts early is related to later reading. So assessing some of those print concepts early would make sense as well. Okay, great. Um, the third critical area in the book is sound letter linkers. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> so what does that mean to you? And then I should mention too, so um, IDA Ontario, obviously based in Ontario, Canada, and um, in our kindergarten program, it's pretty much what in the States would be considered pre-K and K together. It's sort of the four-year-olds and the five-year-olds in a, in a split program. So thinking about those kind of early learners in school, how do you see that sound letter linking being best done? Yes, I, I want to mention something about this chapter because we made a decision around this chapter that was different from prior books on early literacy. And that is we combined the phonological awareness and the alphabet knowledge chapters into this chapter. Mm -hmm. And that was important to us because the point of the phonological awareness is really to help children get to that phoneme level. And then once they, and, and is to map it onto the print. Um, so mm -hmm. once they have some letter knowledge, um, know some of the letter names and sounds, then doing the phonemic awareness activities with those letters is important and it will depend on students' development of where they, where they are in their development. But that's why we combine those two. So that was really important for us to combine. One of the pitfalls, I think, that we that some sometimes people fall into is they think phonological awareness is lockstep. Like first you start with rhyming and then you move to beginning, beginning sound or then you, and you move yeah. to syllable and the onset rhyme, et cetera. But um, while it does go from more, the larger chunks to like the more complex, smaller individual sounds of language, um, evidence shows that children can be learning sensitivity to multiple areas simultaneously and not necessarily in this lockstep kind of fashion. I would say that probably there was more of this idea of this lockstep fashion about 20 years ago during the reading first days. I was I was a reading first uh, reading coach during that time in, in Oklahoma and Virginia. Um, so there was more of, of that, I would say, about 20 years ago. But we wanted to make sure we weren't communicating to, to people that you just need to practice rhyming with children until they get it or something. A lot of children don't even mm -hmm. get rhyming, but they're able to do other um, things. So the goal is to move children toward grasping the alphabetic principle or the understanding that what I'm saying can be systematically written down in our in English from left to right um, and, and map on roughly. And once that sort of formal reading instruction piece starts, um, you know, we've talked about scope and sequence and that kind of thing. Why is it important to be explicit and systematic? And I mean, I'm kind of thinking about the the equity angle and things like that as well. So even with young learners, once it's time, why is it important that it's, it's explicit and systematic for everyone? Yes, I think, I think that this is really important. And explicit, I want to say something about explicit and systematic. Sometimes people think of explicit and systematic as like drill and kill. And those are not the mm -hmm. same thing. So there's this, I think, mistaken idea that it has to be rote and boring if it's going to be explicit and systematic. Everything we talk about in our book is around playful learning, but it can still be explicit 
and systematic. Explicit means you're explicitly teaching the particular, um, for example, letter, letter name, letter sound, in an explicit way, um, in a direct way. Um, you're not waiting for them to just figure it out, that you're actually teaching it to them. And then systematic means you're going by some sort of systematic scope and sequence. Um, and I fully understand that when I defined both of those, I used the word in the definition. So I just, <laughs> I just want to say it acknowledge. That's okay. You fleshed it out more. I know what you mean. <laughs> That's good. And now in Ontario, I know it's very different, different provinces, different states, but our kindergarten program is play-based. So mm-hmm. we certainly have an opportunity for a lot of that playfulness. Do you see... Um, these coexisting yes. well, that we can have play-based times of the day, as well as, you know, pockets of more explicit instruction? I think that, the, yes, I think they can coexist very well. And um, and even within the play-based times, there can be um, explicit instructional opportunities going on. Um, for example, um, this is based on the work of, of Susan Newman and colleagues, um, uh, one of the things that she studied was when children are playing in centers or play areas, if you add print to that area, what do they do? What do children do? Well, they have more experiences with print, but it gets even more heightened when adults mediate that experience with print for them. So for example, if they're in a restaurant center, the adult might take the, um, take the opportunity to be, uh, the, you know, the, waiter or waitress first and um, write the order and then a child might. And there could be an opportunity within that, not just for the modeled literacy to occur there, but also to systematically teach something or explicitly teach something in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, In preschool, I think a lot about those opportunities that are teachable opportunities for young children. And I think that there is a lot around writing in particular that we can... Um, do that will help their literacy in general during many moments. So it's not that we have to separate it out like this is the play time and this is the literacy time, but these things can exist really well together. We tried to do this in our uh, our book, this kind of playful, explicit, um, because there's both of these things going on um, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Letter names first or letter sounds first? <laughs> well, in our book, we recommend both simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I wanted to make sure that got out there for all the people who have that question. Um, this next yeah, one isn't even, a, isn't even a question, but just something that I, I noted in the book that I think is great. Um, you mentioned in terms of things like sound letter sorts, important to ensure that the kids can actually name the picture. And that's one thing I found right. because I was doing, um, after I did sort of that first sound fluency screening piece, then really wanted to work on first sound fluency. But then with some of the pictures, like they don't know what a yak is. So you really have to make sure it's not, that you're actually like testing the scale or working on the scale that you think you're working on, because if they don't know what the picture is called, it's uh, it's hard for them to do that. So I was glad that was in there. And then the last question I had on this section was, well, first a quote. So it says, research shows that memorization doesn't actually lead to reading well. And I know, you know, we know about how that plays in with older kids and reading and and memorizing words and all that. But you kind of make reference to babies and toddlers, too, and the whole, you know, flashcard idea. Why do we not want to to worry too young about getting our kids to read that way? I love this question. You're picking up all of, I think, the very key important points here. Um, 
flashcard drill is such a big thing and sight word learning is such a big thing that I'm seeing in preschools today. Um, however, that is not how we learn to read. So we, as skilled readers, have thousands and thousands of sight words, words that we can recognize instantly. Yeah. But we didn't learn them through memorizing them. We're not, our brains don't do it that way. Um, it's really the connections that we form between the individual sounds in our language and the letters as we're reading them in text. It's those letter sound connections that we're making um, that then solidify those individual sounds into units for children. Um, if you have children um, using a word bank, and not everybody would recommend um, flashcards. I think in our book, we don't recommend it at all. Um, but if you do end up using a word bank, it should be based on words that children already have started, already know. So it's um, rather than words that they're trying to decode or memorize. Um, so I think that making sure to understand understanding that development of how word learning, actually how the site where word learning is actually works. And to me, the best resource for that is anything by Linnea Airy. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, you cannot go wrong with her work. The fourth well, section in the book her. is <laughs> called Resourceful Writers. And I know this is one that you uh, are extra passionate about. And I've been using some of your work in my class, which we will get to. But tell me about how you see resourceful writers in those early literacy years. I think of writing as a big missed opportunity for literacy development. Um, I've noticed that um, teachers tend to think of it separately, of writing and reading separately. And I don't think it's a fault of the teacher. As a, When I was a second grade teacher, I thought of him separately as well. I didn't really understand how writing and reading go hand in hand and how one helps the other. And in this preschool space, I often just see kind of rote writing activities like write, writing the name over and over again, copying, maybe tracing, um, but not really helping children to listen for the sounds and words and write down what they're hearing. And a lot of children are ready to what we call in the book, estimate spelling, mm -hmm. um, or also known as invent spellings. Um, we, we like the term estimated because they're not really inventing it. They're not just making it up out of anything. These all are very logical um, representations. And when they're starting to estimate spellings, that's a really exciting thing. They have grasped the alphabetic principle. They are understanding how our written language works. And that's a huge, huge, huge milestone. Um, so I think that writing is such an opportunity to develop those uh, print skills early uh, I also think that there's a lot of language development that can take place through writing. So children, as they think about and write about what they are interested in, um, their ideas can flow much more than their pen on the paper, you know, pencil mm -hmm. on the paper. And when I say writing, I'm not necessarily talking about pencil to paper all the time. So writing can involve the teacher being the scribe and the child's so um, dictating, so child dictated writing. It can involve the child drawing a picture and maybe making some other marks. It can involve them inventing spellings. It can involve it can involve magnetic letters. It can be writing in the air. There's a lot of different things that could could count as writing. But um, the idea is that 
you want to attend to the three main areas of writing, which is composing, spelling, and handwriting. But I would say handwriting is really about efficient letter formation and is not about perfect penmanship. What do you because mean? Because the meaning that we want to teach children to efficiently form letters so that they're they can write fluently um, their ideas as they're growing older. So it's not necessarily about how it that it looks perfect. And I think sometimes we focus on that it looks perfect. They need to form the letters correctly so that they can actually efficiently write them. Right. Um, and that's the more important piece. But in but in you know in the preschool space they're not writing really on lines yet and things like there. There's a lot of writing that's just on blank paper and there's a lot of orientation that they're playing around with. So things might go in a circle or, or be backwards and they're playing around with these things. Um, so thinking about the restrictions that we're placing on children on what constitutes writing is important and how do we free up some of those restrictions so that we can really help their literacy grow. It's amazing that we're on the same wavelength with with this conversation because I'm thinking, okay, estimated spelling, covered that, check. Composing, spelling, handwriting, yes, she talked about that, so I don't need to, to prompt any further. I do want to talk, though, about your rising star process, this idea of scaffolding with young kids writing. And I can say that when I first saw this you know, online, I printed it out and I kind of made myself a little cheat sheet all on one page with with prompts and all of that. And it it was a really big help to me in my class this year. So could you speak a little bit about that, please? Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited that it was um, help, it's helpful to you. You know, um, my colleague, Stephanie Kopp, um, with, you know, who led this uh, work, she um, was um, a doctoral student of mine at the University of Virginia and now is a professor, uh, assistant professor at the at Lynchburg um, at the University of Lynchburg. Um, and this also included my colleagues, Clara Belgabas and Debbie Slick and Jenny um, Pasalacqua. But the idea of this was that we wanted to help teachers understand how they can help children in the moment, mm -hmm. in teachable moments. So this wasn't about laying out uh, this article, which is available open resource freely to anybody, this article was not about um, you must do your writing in this certain way, but rather as children are writing, how do you support them? Because each one of them is different in their ability. Everybody's not going to be in the same place at the same time. And particularly in classrooms, you're talking about that have, combine um, fours and fives or threes, fours and fives. You're going to find a wide range uh, where some children are um, drawing and they, they think their drawing represents the writing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they might be scribbling. Um, sometimes they might be writing with letter-like forms. Sometimes they're writing with um, salient sounds or sounds that they hear in words. That's exciting because of the alpha, you know, grasping the alphabetic principle. And then sometimes some of them are writing with beginning and ending sounds. And that's amazing. So that, that would be an amazing place for them to be at the end of the preschool four-year-old year. Um, and, um, so how do you help them where they are and move them to the next place? This is why we did this, um, kind of scaffolding decision guide so that teachers would start by letting children think, think about how, you know, th help them think about the, what sound comes next and not just giving them the sounds. Mm -hmm. 
because we saw a lot of that a lot in our research is that um, sometimes teachers would be more likely to just give children the next sound or spell a word for them without letting them think about it. So really, um, Stephanie and I were concerned about like, how do we really help teachers to help children think? Yeah. No, I love that. And I just love, you know, there's like the, um, the visuals that kind of show like sample levels of development. And so what I did was I just got my kids to do a sample piece for me. Um, I started this after Christmas of last school year and they did a little sample piece. And so then I could kind of say, okay, these kids are here and these kids are here. So next time, what am I going to try to do? And then like you say, in the moment and getting them thinking, which was great. Um, And a little success story for you is one little child in my class, the entire year, you know, the sweetest thing, but letter sound connection, not really there could maybe copy. Like if I, I wrote could copy underneath, but not really getting what was going on. And just, uh, towards the end of the year, we were uh, doing a writing piece and I said, okay, draw your picture. And, and the child drew their picture. And I said, okay, so what are you going to write about your picture? And and they said, cheetah. And I said, okay, great. And and so how are you going to write that? And, and the child said, cheetah, ch- ch- cheetah. Like, yes, okay. And so how are you going to spell it? And the child said, like chair. And I said, yep, that's right. And went over to the sound wall where we've got the keyword for the sound is the picture of the chair. And then went back and copied the C and the H onto their onto their page. So, I mean, as you said, if that's where we're getting some kids by the end of that, and, and in this case, it was sort of that pre-K, you would call it mm-hmm. year, but I, I considered that success. And I also, what I try to do too, is I find from one day of writing to the next day, or maybe we don't get back to you know our journal task for a couple of days or whatever. So not only giving the feedback in the moment, but then the goal before we start the next time. So as I'm handing out the booklets, I'll say, okay, oh, and Susie's going to work on spaces between her words today. Oh, and, you know, so-and-so is going to work on, you know, really stretching out those sounds or whatever, because you can't write feedback and that they're going to actually be able to use the next time or anything, right? So, and they may not even remember what you told them to do last time. So I, I try to do that too, which I, I feel kind of um, enhanced what, what I was doing with your work as well. But note the uh, uh, link to it in the show notes as well, of course, the Rising Star Scaffolding Guide, because it's excellent. Thank you. And I love those, I love the example that you shared of, of the cheetah. Um, exactly, exactly. I love, you hit the, nail on the head. Um, we are just trying to help each child move forward and have, and encourage our, encourage children to take the next step mm-hmm. in their development rather than assuming all children are at the same place. Um, and in doing so you're differentiating, mm-hmm. um, for children where they are. Yeah, absolutely. All right. The fifth area in the book is text comprehenders. And I know we can get into some interesting stuff here too. So tell me, how do you see text comprehenders in these early years of schooling? Well, I think text comprehension, again, when we think about the simple view of reading and the language comprehension portion, it's really about really understanding those texts, um, not just everyday language. So this formal language of texts. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, the best ways to make sure to introduce, um, one of the best instructional methods for text comprehension has to be the read aloud and the interactive read aloud. Now in read alouds, the research has shown that it's not only the book that 
or book sets that you're using, but it's also the extra textual talk or the talk that occurs outside of the book itself that teachers are children, engaging children with. So those conversations that happen before, during, and after the reading experience matter. And a lot of after reading is where you can get into a lot of discussion about the um, about books um, and about really understanding. Um, we have a lot of things in this in in this chapter, but one of the things I want to highlight is the importance of informational text. Um, so, informational texts uh, are those that inform or uh, it, you know tell us something about the natural or social world. Um, they might also be how-to types of texts, uh, but they're giving us some information. And these are the kinds of texts that children will need to be able to read in their textbooks later on we tend to just give them early access to just narrative text or story. Stories are important too. However, they need to see a variety of text structures. And, you know, a lot of standards now have 50, up to 50% uh, informational uh, texts at the earliest levels at, in, the, in kindergarten and above um, that children are exposed to these. And that's, that's really important. In addition to just the type of text, you want to think about developing text sets. And this is where building knowledge comes in because our comprehension doesn't just rely on um, what's on the page or what we glean from a given text. We use our background knowledge that we already have about a topic to learn from that book and to, not only to understand it, but to gain new knowledge from it. If we don't have the background knowledge, we won't really understand the book or the text. And that's why systematically building children's knowledge about the world around them, both the natural and social world, so science and social studies, becomes really important very early on, right from the beginning. Um, you're building understandings about the, the natural and social world that will lead to the kinds of knowledge that they need um, as they continue on in school. Um, so Text sets are, are a good way to do that, developing, and they don't all have to be informational text. You might have some informational text. You might have some mixed genre that has some informational component, some narrative component, and you might have some narrative components within that um, text set that systematically or incrementally build knowledge for children. I know at the end of this past school year, um, the inquiry we were doing was all on building and construction and, and all of that. And so I always keep this idea of tech sets in mind. And all of the first ones people recommended to me, because I like to ask on Twitter if people have recommendations, right? Because if educators can put a stamp yes. of approval on a book, then that's helpful. Um, but so many different narrative, like neat narrative picture books about kids and building and all of that. And so then it was a case of kind of finding some of that nonfiction to work in, you know, how do strong and stable structures work? And, and a lot of that, like info that I wanted them to get out of that too. But um, right. I love that idea of, of the tech sets. And I know you were also on the Scientific Advisory Committee for the Knowledge Matters campaign. Yes. So this is uh, this is certainly an area of, of interest mm -hmm. and work for you too. So that's great. Um, the last thing I want to ask you, so moving away from the book now, is just, I know that you are a parent and I'm just mm -hmm. curious to know your, a lot of your, your work and research and things began before you became a parent. Yes. How did any of that change? I mean, certainly we know the working mother kind of angle, but in terms of actually how you thought about reading research or maybe your areas of interest or, mm -hmm. you know, did having a child and kind of seeing that process start change anything for you? Yes, that, that was, that's a great question because let's see, my child is eight years old. 
world. And I started doing research. Um, gosh, I started my doctoral program in 2005 and finished my doctoral program in 2009. So I start my, started doing research as early as 2005. Um, and I had my son in 2015. But what it really taught me was when I had him, I began to really learn what I believed mattered about development, because what was I doing with my child? And what really stood mm -hmm. out to me is how much I believed that language plays a critical foundation in reading and sets the stage. And so to me, I couldn't, I taught everybody around me to develop techniques to develop his language. I taught them to have conversations with him before he was able to have conversations. I taught them, I, 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 I um, continually would um, talk with him and then narrate some of the things I was doing. Um, I've heard a parent say one time, huh, we talk a lot with, the adults talk a lot with each other, but we're not really talking with our child. So this, instead of talking at your child or just exposing them to language around them, it's really the interaction that matters. And I realized after I had my child, I realized how much I believed that. So to me, it brought to light like the importance even more of language development. And, and really that has been a critical part of my um, research is how do we strengthen children's language in a way that will strengthen their reading? Yeah. Well, before I let you go, I just need to ask you, what are you working on now and where can listeners find you if they want to learn more? Well, um, I... Um, want to uh, kind of put a put a plug in for a a book that was just released um, by Guilford called The Handbook on the Science of Early Literacy. It is um, a volume that I edited along with my colleagues Susan Newman and Nicole Patton Terry. Um, and it is uh, comprised of uh, about 32 or 33 chapters of really cutting edge research um, with the audience of um, researchers, doctoral students, literacy leaders, um, and um, you know those who lead teachers. Some, if, if teachers are interested in research, reading the research themselves, this would be a great volume as well. Um, and so I just wanted to, to put that out there. Um, I also want to say that we have a lot of great resources on uh, the Florida Center for Reading Research Research website, so uh, fcrr.org, and I encourage you to kind of check out the resources that are available there. That's great, and we will link to all of that, of course, uh, in our show notes. And I will mention Thank that you. as we're recording this episode a little bit in advance, my pre-ordered copy of that book has not yet arrived, <laughs> but I'm sure that is going to be uh, be my summer reading, and I can't wait for that. Um, Dr. Sonia Cabell, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Show notes for this episode with all the links and information you need can be found at podcast.com idaontario.com and you have been listening to episode two of reading road trip with sonia cabell as our guest 
If early literacy is of particular interest to you, we will also link to the webinar I did last summer for IDA Ontario called Structured Literacy in Kindergarten, Five Key Changes That Made All My Students Readers. We were blown away by the educators who gave up time on their holidays to watch. More than 1,000 attended live and it has since been viewed more than 9,000 times on YouTube. And just before the school year ended, I got a lovely message from a teacher on Twitter who reached out to say, your IDA webinar on the structured literacy changes you made to your kindergarten program was monumental for improving our programming this year. I made the same goal to have all of my SKs reading by the end of the year, which felt way too ambitious and frankly unachievable. I got most there by November, which was months sooner than any previous year, then everyone there except one by January. And when she sent me this message in June, the very last student had just read their first book. So it's so nice to get those messages. And if that is something that interests you, we will have that linked in the show notes for today's episode. And now it is time for that typical end of the podcast call to action. If you enjoyed this episode of Reading Road Trip, we'd love it if you could rate and or review it in your podcast app, as this is extremely helpful for a new podcast. And of course, we welcome any social media love you feel inspired to spread as well. Feel free to tag IDA Ontario and me. My handle is This Mom Loves. Make sure you're following the Reading Road Trip podcast in your app and watch for new episodes dropping every Monday throughout the summer. We couldn't bring Reading Road Trip to you without the behind the scenes support from Caitlin Hanna, Brittany Haynes, and Melinda Jones at IDA Ontario. I'm Kate Wynn, and along with my co producer, Una Malcolm, we hope this episode of Reading Road Trip has made your path to evidence based literacy instruction just a little bit clearer and a lot more fun. Join us next time for another fantastic guest interview here on Reading Road Trip.